Welcome to the MoYo Nutrition Podcast, where each week we bring you our thoughts and more in-depth discussion on the latest research reviewed in our weekly newsletter. You are joined today by nutrition professors, Rachel Brown. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. And myself, Lisa Houghton, who are passionate about keeping you up to date with the latest health research and debunking the bad science amongst the over 20,000 nutrition-related research publications a year. Now, this is episode six, the number which symbolizes beauty and high ideals. And the Pythagoreans acknowledged number six to be the first perfect number. Oh, no. I'm, I'm always trying to see these links with our podcast for the week, but I'm afraid that this uh, topic that I'm going to speak about today is a little far from perfect. It really had me chewing nails and breathing fire. <laughs> well, with an intro like that, I think we should just jump into it. Tell us more. Well, after receiving several rapid-fire texts one evening last week asking if I was watching one of our popular news shows here, I quickly turned on the TV and, oh, God, I I wish I hadn't. (laughs) What did you see? Well, what followed was probably several minutes of blood pressure-inducing, half-truth, misleading statements mixed in with a bit of uh, utter nonsense and all coming out of the mouth of, quote, uh, health guru, unquote, Michael Mosley. Okay, so for those who don't know who Michael Mosley is, he's a British TV journalist, producer, presenter, and former medical doctor, and more recently made famous for a series of weight loss books. And apparently his own experience of reversing his type 2 diabetes through diet and exercise is a classic example of how powerful a personal story can be. So we do see that body of evidence showing how one person's antidote told well can trump science. But anyways, that we can go on about that, but we want to hear more from you, RB. Okay. So, well, in the introduction to the news piece, we're told it's time for some firm facts to shift the fat. Yes. And you have always been very adamant that if, you know, you start to see somebody selling a diet book, you need to be quite wary of um, these people because they are directly profiting from their book sales. Mm. And, you know, from that perspective, they could hardly be impartial. So they may not be your go-to person. Yes, exactly. And and so I'd recommend our listening audience to go and check out one of our previous newsletter issues on the really the high level of misinformation that we do see in diet books. And basically, as you've said, anyone that's profiting from these exaggerated, often one-sided claims in diet books should really be treated with what I call a healthy dose of scepticism. Yeah, so that was that other issue was issue 24. And I loved your piece on that, which was looking at those top selling diet books. So this was a research study looking at the amount of misinformation and the claims that lacked any scientific basis. So I would encourage everyone to check out that issue if you haven't read it all ready and we have linked it in this week's newsletter. Okay, so now I know you quite well, Rachel, and I think Mm -hmm. it would be fair to say that your intention is not to beat up on keto. 
or even fasting. Um, so I suspect the real trigger here uh, that was pulled was his overly zealous claims and his lack of science. Yeah, that's spot on. And uh, yeah, it's this misinformation that we know can lead to lots of confusion. And I guess what I get really irritated with is, is people that just cherry pick the data and present one side of it as if it's the only conclusion we can come to. And that really does get on my wick. Yes, 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 we know that. And, um, and you know, hence the section of Rachel's rant in our newsletter, because there's <laughs> enough cherry picking going on out there. <laughs> okay. okay, so we discussed before the show that I would um, kind of mix up the format this week, and I would watch um, Michael Mosley's interview and pick out the various claims that I think would have you losing your mind. And mm -hmm. um, although it's a bit like putting you in the hot seat, right? Right now, I, I just thought it would be good fun for the show. So, shall I just fire away and see what you have to say? Oh, goodness. I, okay. Um, I'm a bit nervous, but I'm fired up enough to give it a real good go. Okay. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring it on. Okay. So, the first point that had me wondering was that he claimed the keto diet causes ketoacidosis. That's not true, right? A good one. And I, and I do clearly remember this because I nearly fell off my chair. So no, that's not right. And when he was asked how keto works, Mosley did respond by saying it works by putting your body in a state of ketoacidosis. And so if that was really the case, then most of our keto junkies would be ill and if not dead really. Because when we look at what ketoacidosis is, it's, it's a life-threatening condition where uncontrolled production of ketones result in a metabolic acidosis. And we know our body likes to stay um, at, a, at a nice level pH. So this most often is seen in people with poorly managed type 1 diabetes, really because of a lack of insulin. So without insulin, uh, the body can't use glucose as a fuel, and so it relies on the breakdown of fat. And so what we have is this really rapid breakdown of fat that produces ketones, but at such a fast rate that our bodies actually can't process them properly. And so the ketones build up in our blood, causing them to become acidic, and I guess that's where you get the term ketoacidosis. And so if you look at symptoms of this, you get tiredness, dizziness, nausea, extreme thirst, and, and breathlessness. Okay, so when asked what Mosley really should have referred to was ketosis, not ketoacidosis. Yes, that's correct. So it's this is where ketone levels in the blood and the urine rise as a result of low carbohydrate availability. And so here the body starts to use more fat as a fuel and ketones are produced, but they're produced at levels that the body can process. And so to put this, I guess, in perspective using uh, it as a blood biomarker, in ketosis, we see ketones rise to around 0.5 to maybe up to 3 millimoles per litre. But uh, levels of ketones and ketoacidosis can be up to 10 times this amount. Okay, so pretty impressed by your rapid fire ability there, RB. Facts just spilling out of you. <laughs> okay, so before we go on, given you're clearly on a roll, what's all the fuss about ketosis? 
Okay. Well, there are claims out there that ketosis reduces appetite, so that means that we eat less. Yeah, that's definitely toted as a mechanism. Is this true? Well, let's have a look at the science, and I'm actually quite interested in this. And so I was quite impressed by an elegant study published last year by Kevin Hall's group, which does shed some light on this claim. So now Kevin Hall, um, many of you may know, is a nutrition scientist at the National Institute of Health in the US. And him and his group have done quite a bit of work in this area. And so last year, him and his group conducted a randomized crossover study with 20 participants who were provided with two types of diets. So the first diet was a high-fat keto diet, and the second, um, as comparison, was a low-fat plant-based diet. So at kind of both those extremes that you do see in, in the nutrition world these days. Um, so to put it another way, the keto diet was low-carb, and the plant-based diet was a high-carb diet. Now, both these diets were provided under very controlled conditions for two weeks, and so it should be noted when I say control conditions, this means that the people actually came in to the laboratory and were inpatients for the two weeks. So they were observed and they couldn't go out. So that very well controlled conditions. Also, another uh, point to make, and which I think is quite important, is that both these diets were minimally processed, meaning that the food they provided was um, not ultra processed and kind of more whole foods, the kind of foods that we might recommend. Okay, so we essentially have a low-carb diet with the keto versus a high-carb diet with a low-fat plant-based focus. Yes, correct. So this is really all aligned with the proposed carbohydrate insulin model of obesity that suggests that high-carbohydrate diets, they lead to excess insulin secretion, which promotes fat accumulation and then increases energy intake. Okay, so essentially this model that's been proposed really suggests that high carbohydrates weakens our regulatory control. Yeah, exactly. And so as such, these researchers then measured ad libitum intakes over the two weeks. So when I say ad libitum, it means that they were allowed to eat as much as they wanted. And what they also did, so they, they looked at intake over the two weeks, but they also wanted to specifically look at what the intakes were during the second week, because this is when we know that ketones may be a little bit higher than in the first week, and so more likely to elicit that kind of um, greater effect on appetite. So one of the so-called regulatory controls. Okay, so now before we get to the results, I have to say I really like the way the paper was presented and they mm -hmm. had supplementary information on the diet where they provided the two-week menu for each intervention with pictures of the mm. meals. So it was nice. pages and pages of pictures, and they look so good. Quite interesting to see, you know, a menu plan um, depicted in that way. And in fact, I had to actually go get something to eat after looking at them. <laughs> True. So maybe just looking at food makes you gain weight. Well, food marketing research certainly says so, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, on to the results of the study. So did participants eat less energy on the keto plan? Well, no, they didn't. And in fact, over the two-week period, participants actually consumed statistically significantly less energy when they followed the plant-based compared to the keto. So this was around about nearly 2,900 kilojoules per day less 
or around about 690 kilocalories less, depending on which ones you like to work in. So the difference in energy intake between the two diets really was quite substantial. And of course, then they were looking at that second week because of the higher levels of ketones and the difference there was a little bit less. So it had attenuated the difference between the two diets um, down to about 2,300 kilojoules per day. Which is, I'd say, about 550 kilocalories per day was the difference. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that that is still quite a bit of difference there. So what about the ketone levels? What was happening there? Yes, well, the keto diet definitely induced nutritional ketosis. And this was defined by uh, blood levels of ketones in the blood being greater than 0.5 millimoles per litre. And this occurred after just a few days on the keto diet. And as predicted, it was highest during that second week where I think it averaged around about 1.8 millimoles per litre. And I'll also add here that the plant-based diet with the high carbohydrate intake really did increase that postprandial or, or post-meal insulin levels. Okay, so I mean, it looks like the biomarkers make sense. The adherence was probably excellent. I guess I'm wondering still whether these higher circulating levels of ketones reduced appetite. Well, not really. Um, the study did have several measurements of appetite in the two interventions, including palatability and motivation to eat and eating rate and, and so on. And the results showed that there was no difference reported in the pleasantness or the familiarity between the two diets, the low-fat or the low-carbohydrate. And participants also reported no differences in hunger or satisfaction or, or fullness um, or eating capacity on the same two, really despite these quite large differences in, in energy intake. And what was somewhat interesting was that the participants on the low-carbohydrate keto diet ate their meals much more quickly compared to those on the, the low-fat plant-based diet. Oh, okay, very interesting. And we could, of course, have refer back to our chewing issue mm, that we just exactly. <laughs> So were the results then largely a function of the lower energy density of that low-fat, high-carb diet? Yeah, well, I think this has a lot to do with it. So I think that's a big factor, uh, especially since they found that participants on the low-fat diet ate around about 690 grams less of food compared to those on the low-carbohydrate keto diet. I do, I do think we can't rule out ketones having some effect on appetite from the study because we did see that those differences we mentioned between the, the two diets was attenuated in that second week. So they actually ate uh, less on the keto diet in the second week they, than they did in the first, but this was still much more energy than on the on the low carbohydrate diet. So I mean on the low fat diet, I should say. <laughs> so I guess it, you know, there might still be something to ketones and appetite um, suppression, but this study really probably does refute that um, carbohydrate insulin model and its hypothesis that ingesting carbs exerts a major effect on appetite and energy intake. And we really should probably take a deeper dive into this in future episodes, but um, so far, Mosley's probably incorrect terminology and keto-suppressing appetite attributes probably just don't yet hold up. 
yeah, weight loss, weight gain, maintenance, it's all really very complex, you know, involving physiological, psychological, and all those environmental factors and, and lots more. So it's definitely worth a, a deep dive. Okay, so well, we have links in to Kevin Hall's study in our newsletter this week, but let's get Rachel back in the hot seat. Okay. And um, let's talk about Mosley's recommendations on the type of fat that we should have in our diet, which he points out is important and perhaps more important than the total amount of fat. Okay, I, I will agree with him there. Okay, good. Um, he also sings the praises of fatty fish. Oh, yes, I, I also agree with them there. Two things, two ticks. Great, excellent. Will you be um, three times lucky mostly? <laughs> he, he seems to be a fan of high fat dairy. Oh, yes, that did get me going. Okay, tell us more. Well, um, it's always good to head back to the evidence. And there is some research that does suggest that certain high-fat dairy products such as your yogurts and your cheese don't appear to have the same uh, bad effects that we see with butter. But the research in this area really is far from a slam dunk. And we did look at this one in much more in-depth in one of our previous newsletters. Yeah, I looked that one up. It was issue 12. And in this issue, we did highlight a study examining three large cohorts of over 222,000 participants, which showed that isocaloric replacement of about 5% of dairy fat with polyunsaturated or vegetable fat was associated with a reduction in um, cardiovascular risk. And, and fairly significant for the polyunsaturated fat, it was a 24% reduction in risk. Whereas if you replace that dairy fat with a highly refined carbohydrate, it didn't change cardiovascular disease risk. And even worse, if you replace that dairy fat with another animal fat, the risks actually went up and increased by about 6%. But yes, as you mentioned, fermented dairy in the form of yogurt, which has some probiotic content, can positively influence that gut microbiota and possibly improve your cardiometabolic risk factors. And the effect is not seen with butter, unfortunately, Rachel. So <laughs> but it really is the type of dairy food or how you define it that's important. Exactly. So we don't want everybody running out and buttering up their bread too often, do we, Lisa? I know. I just love the bread and butter. <laughs> Kryptonite. Okay, so point number three. Mosley says in the interview that exercise is not useful for body weight regulation, which is a bit ironic given when I looked up all his books, one of his books is actually titled Fast Exercise. Oh, yes. Now, here he does contradict himself a bit. So, first, he comments that exercise is good for lots of things, such as brain and mood, but then stresses it's not really good for um, body weight regulation. And then at the end of the interview, when asked, you know, what's the one thing people could do right now to improve their health, he suggests people go for a brisk walk. So, walking around, I think he said 100 steps per minute, and also to do this in the fastest state state before breakfast so that you burn more fat. So confused? Yeah, I guess I am a little confused because yesterday I just read a headline story on him that he um, instructed people to skip breakfast to lose weight, let alone go for a walk before breakfast. <laughs> oh, God, ask yourself. <laughs> Gosh, so 
Well, I do agree that compared to exercise, diet has that greater impact on weight loss, but there really is a wealth of information out there on the importance of exercise for weight maintenance. And there's also heaps of other reasons to be physically active. Yeah, and the evidence is solid as there, so we won't belabor it. But Mm. what about his comment about exercising in a fasted state? Well, that's an interesting one. So exercising um, under a fasting state really does cause a spike in the amount of fat oxidized. But then when you look at it over the whole 24 hours, the effect is actually quite minimal. And what we have to remember is that it's really the calorie deficit that's important for weight loss. And over a 24-hour period, there's really no difference with exercising under fasting or fed conditions for that calorie, trying to get that calorie deficit. Yes. And given I know I was going to ask you this question, I wanted to look as smart as you and did a bit of a literature review. (laughs) Oh, well done. What did you find? Well, you're spot on. Um, There was a pretty good meta-analysis done in 2017 that included five studies looking at exercise in that fasted or fed state. And they did indeed find no evidence of a difference in body weight or composition. You, You said, you know, I think minimal in the author's here supported that using the word trivial. Excellent. Is that it for the Mosley and his misinformation? (laughs) Surely not. (laughs) No, no, not off the hook yet. There's one last point. So given the title of his new book, Fast 800 Keto, Mosley was adamant that rapid weight loss is best and the consumption of only 800 kilocalories per day was the way to do it. Okay, I think I've got this one too, because we previously and quite recently reviewed this in our newsletter. Yeah, so that was issue 19, also linked in the newsletter. Go on. Gosh, we are keeping up to date with all the um, topical things, aren't we? Okay, so what we did was there was, um, we saw that there was certainly increasing evidence that rapid weight loss is effective. And in this issue, we did review the direct study which successfully used a low-calorie total replacement diet. So this was around about 800 kilocalories per day. Yeah, I think it was 825 to about 850 kilocalories, yep. Oh, great, great. So this study was looking at rapid weight loss for the remission of type 2 diabetes. Uh, But as with all things nutrition, it's really not a one-size-fits-all or or rather a one-diet-fits-all. So while we're seeing a lot more support definitely in the literature for rapid weight loss, which we probably haven't seen previously, it doesn't mean that we should just throw out the slow and steady approach because such an approach I, I think will suit some people. And I guess it's our jobs as health professionals to really work out um, what's best for our client and really seek out those best options. Yeah, and if there's anything we've learned about weight loss, it's that there are a lot of ways to lose weight. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, you know, if you look at the laws of of physics, um, we see that, you know, to be, you know, you really need to be in a negative energy balance to lose weight. And I guess because keto is restrictive in what you can eat, most people will actually consume less energy than their habitual diets. And so surprise, surprise, they lose weight. And well, at least in the short term. And really for a lot of people, like many other diets, as people's 
enthusiasm for such restrictive eating patterns start to wane, that's when the weight starts to pick right back on. Yeah, so I think most of our listeners agree. The key to weight loss is finding an eating plan that suits the individual and one that induces a calorie deficit. Then, of course, add in other simple advice, such as choosing those minimally processed foods, perhaps eating slowly. Lots of studies highlighting the importance now of contact time in support. Yeah, and I'm really encouraged by... uh, the really highly intensive look-ahead study that showed successful weight maintenance at four years uh, was really associated with attending more of the treatment sessions. And I think this really supports the roles of nutritionists and dietitian and well-trained health coaches uh, and, and shows how important they are here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so now you're actually off the hook, Rachel. (laughs) Although I suspect Michael Mosley is not off the hook, but probably that's a near perfect way to end the episode. You get that perfect number six. Oh, yes, there you go. But it also does allow um, a segue to highlight our best practice section in the newsletter this week, where we have linked you to that look ahead study and then kind of curated and summarized some of those weight maintenance intervention protocol that perhaps you can apply um, to your clients out there. Oh, yeah, that's the perfect accompaniment to this this topic that we're discussing. Well done. Okay, so before I close the podcast here, I have one more surprise for you, Rachel. Okay. (laughs) Okay, you're not going to believe this, but I was actually able to get Michael Mosley on the line. Oh my God, are you kidding? (laughs) Yes, I'm kidding. (laughs) Oh my God. I was about to say, bring it on. (laughs) I tried, I tried, you didn't pick up. (laughs) But can you imagine? (laughs) Oh my goodness, that would be interesting. But I do find that the more you you talk to people that tend to be rather partial to one way or the other, they don't really listen anyway. So (laughs) somewhat futile, I think it would be. But thanks for trying. (laughs) Well, we're here at least to back it up with the science. So, well, that's it for our episode today. Thank you to everyone for listening. All of our discussion and study links can be found in our weekly newsletter, which is free to anyone who wants to subscribe. You can go to our Moyo Nutrition at our, our Instagram or Twitter account and sign up there using the link. And to keep up to date, make sure you follow us here. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing us around. We'll be back next week with episode seven, where the number seven itself symbolizes the seed of life. All right. Maybe time to put you in the hot seat, Lisa, and look at some um, topics in the area of pregnancy. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the tables have turned. (laughs) Until then, have a great week and stay safe. So I was quite impressed by the elegant study by Kevin Hall's group. She's right on some of these claims. Okay, excellent. I'll be better okay. after a glass of water. Do not put that in the bloopers. <laughs> no. <laughs>